Welcome back to the Unstressable Podcast. I'm your host, Alice Law, and this podcast is a series of amazing conversations with incredible people talking about what makes them unstressable from some of life's greatest challenges and the greatest stresses and losses they've had to overcome and how they came back from them so that you can become unstressable through yours. I'm so excited to welcome today's guest back onto the podcast. We have the amazing Mo Gaudat returning. Mo is the ex-chief business officer of Google X and the international best-selling author of his book, Soul for Happy, as well as now a bestseller, Scary Smart, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Mo's incredible wisdom and story on happiness and his whole story, I would definitely suggest going back to listen to in a previous episode on the podcast. But today I want to talk to him about his new book, Scary Smart, which is out now, which is half about artificial intelligence and half about how our humanity is what will save us from it being a problem. So I can't wait for you to listen to this conversation. As always, it's full of so much wisdom and so interesting. So I hope you enjoy. Excited to have you back on the podcast. Yes, I am actually quite interested to be here because we have so much to talk about since the last podcast. Indeed. And a new name. So you're the first guest on Unstressable. Yeah. Where did we get that name from? <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. So. Congratulations on a good rebrand. Yeah. And it is the, uh, hopefully the name of our book together, which comes out very soon. So, uh, Yeah. Very excited. Very exciting, but we're not going to talk about anything to do with stress today, really. So that's going to oh be no 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 <laughs> different kind of stress. I think we're going to we're going to stress a lot of people today. I think sadly, but we have an answer at the end. So yes, you have a wonderful book called Scary Smart, and it's a different topic than you have obviously been known for as a writer. Happiness has been your go-to so far, but. It's a topic that obviously AI is something that people also associate with you having been in tech. So I'd love to first, before we dive into many, many things with this book, ask you about your experience in the tech industry, you know, developing AI. What was that whole journey for you like from what you saw when you arrived to what you saw up until when you left Google X? Because I think a lot of listeners will know you as a happiness guru. And for those of you that don't know, who is also a very prominent person in the tech industry once upon a time and ran Google X. So you know a lot about this. And I'd love for people to just understand a bit more about the industry they really have no idea about. Yeah, I mean, just to make sure that we also are aligned, Scary Smart is not just about tech. So Scary Smart is a lot more like you, I'm sure you know, but uh, it is a lot more about humanity, really, and happiness and well-being and so on. So yes, I am a very serious geek. That's the truth. I hide that because it doesn't make you a very good happiness teacher, but I'm a very serious geek. I wrote code when I was eight and uh, had every computer that every geek in the world has ever dreamt of. I had a Sinclair, I had a Commodore 64, a Commodore 128. I wrote BASIC, Fortran, COBOL, RPG, everything that you can think of. Till very recently, I used to code until maybe seven, eight years ago, which wasn't very good for my CEO reputation either, but I, I love technology. And for many years, I believed very, very strongly in the transformative power that technology can bring to our world. 
And I have to say, it's true. I mean, in my first job at Google, I was the vice president of emerging markets. So for seven years, I basically participated with my team, created the team that expanded Google to almost half of Google's operations globally. And when you think of that, opening a Google in Bangladesh, for example, is not about hiring two salespeople. It's about getting the internet ready, getting the telecom infrastructure in place by lobbying with governments and telcos and so on getting it to the affordability that makes the internet a democracy, getting the local content in place, getting the economic engine of the internet in place, so e-commerce and so on and so forth. So literally transforming the country upside down. You suddenly introduce a democracy of information where people have in Bangladesh have the same access to knowledge as people in Harvard University. And you start to create jobs and you create economic opportunities. It's amazing the impact that technology can have, right? And I've seen that firsthand and I believed in it and I was carrying the flag and running like crazy. And that held true for a very long time. It still holds true today. I mean, just let me take your Google search away from you for a couple of days and you realize how much it's become an integral part of our knowledge. (laughs) Completely lost, right? And I think it made us smarter and it made us more aware and so on and so forth. I moved then to Google X, and in Google X, for people who don't know, is sort of the innovation arm of Google. So this is where things like self-driving cars are probably the flagship innovation there, but many others that maybe I'm not even at liberty to talk about some of, but quite an innovative place with the mission of Google X true. This is what we believed and wanted to achieve was to solve big problems that affect the life of a billion people or more. So that's amazing. You know, it's an amazing platform for you to innovate. And part of what X did for a while was, you know, a lot of the AI work and a lot of the robotics work was part of X. And I think as a techie, I had three memorable encounters with AI. Maybe we can talk about them later, but the first one was the first time I recognized that we've actually cracked the code on AI was 2009 with a white paper that Google released on something called unprompted AI. And then the second time was when Google acquired DeepMind, a British-based company, which is an incredible bunch of geniuses with an incredible CEO, Demis. And they came and presented to us their work with AI to teach the machines how to play Atari games. And as a geek, I celebrated. As a geek, I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. Humanity is creating incredible intelligence. Until 2016, I think, was my turning point. Again, we can talk about it, but basically in the book, I refer to it as the yellow ball, where uh, we were teaching grippers, basically robotic arms that can grip things, how to grip. And we had a big farm of them. And the way they learned and the speed at which they learned completely opened my eyes that what we're building is not a machine. What we're building is a form of intelligence that is sentient, really. It has every character of sentient beings. It is autonomous. It has agency. It can create or replicate itself. It can develop its own intelligence. And it is very intelligent. And it is evolving. And in many, many ways, I literally, for the first time in my life, stood there. And I thought, what are we doing? Have we thought through this? Because we're literally creating God. And I don't think humanity realizes that. I mean, something that you said in your book, I think first of all, for people to understand just how crazy AI has gotten to such a point that's so far ahead from what the average person thinks. I mean, I didn't know how far AI was already so far ahead of what I thought it was until 
I became friends with you and you explained a bit and then I read your book and I was like, oh my God. It really is quite scary. And yeah. in your book, you say Elon Musk obviously was one of the first people who said, actually, guys, this is not, we should all slow down, which is quite, quite substantial considering that's coming from someone who created it as well. Yeah, I mean, Elon Musk, has, I think everyone has to search for his interview with Joe Rogan online on YouTube. You can listen to the whole interview, but the bits about artificial intelligence are on YouTube. And I think all of us, have no choice but to develop AI. In chapter three of the book, which I think is really one of the cornerstones of the book, uh, which is called The Three Inevitables, the truth is there's no stopping AI. AI has happened and will continue to happen and will continue to evolve. That's the inevitable number one. Inevitable number two is it's going to be smarter than all of us. Actually, as soon as 2029, that's eight years from today, the smartest being on the planet by 2029 is going to be a machine. And that bad things will happen, inevitable number three. And Elon Musk agrees with all three that there is, from a point of view of AI happening, AI has already happened. That's the point that people don't understand. They are better and smarter than humans at every task we've ever assigned to them. So the best driver on the planet is by far a self-driving car, even though we haven't led them on the roads enough yet. The best surveillance officer on the planet is by far a machine. And you can go anywhere. Eh? The world champion of Jeopardy, if you've ever heard of Jeopardy, a very linguistic-based game in the U.S., very famous, where questions are asked in a roundabout way linguistically and the contestants need to find out what was being spoken about. The world champion of Jeopardy is IBM Watson. It's a computer. The world champion of translation. There is no other being on the planet that can speak 93 languages, but Google Translate can. Fluently for most of them, the world champion of Go, the most complex strategy game on the planet, is AlphaGo. It's a computer. Now, every specific narrow task we have assigned to them, they've become smarter than we are. And the interesting bit is, like Elon Musk says in that interview, that he lobbied. He tried. And I lobbied and I tried. I even offered alternative mathematical models for the algorithms of reward and punishment that we develop AI based on. And nobody's listening. And nobody's listening simply because we're stuck in a prisoner's dilemma. So the truth is America will continue to develop AI because China will develop AI. And Google will continue to develop AI because Facebook is going to continue to develop AI. And every startup is going to develop AI because it's their only way of survival against other startups that are creating AI. And the only path to investors that want to invest in AI. It's happened. And it will continue to happen. And Again, Elon Musk, he basically says the threat of AI is, make no mistake, is bigger than nuclear weapons. And he openly says, I tried to stop it, but it won't stop. Can you explain? I think that's a really good um, example, like how you talk about the Cold War, obviously, in your book as a um, way of describing it. But can you explain for people who don't understand? Because when you say things like, obviously, a self-driving car or, you know, winning the chess game online, that all sounds pretty innocent to people and people aren't really that bothered. They think, okay, well, who cares if a game is better than me at the game or, you know, if someone can drive my car for me, that's fine. But what is the actual threat of where it's going to go? From this kind of perspective, people think, oh, it's not that big a deal, but what is the big deal about it? Where is it going to go? It seems so scary. The scariest thing, honestly, is that nobody knows where it's going to go. So I can tell you a lot of very bad scenarios that can go wrong, but that's not the scariest bit. The scariest bit is that nobody knows what's going to happen. And interestingly, let me just be very clear and open about this. You 
and I have always lived on a planet where the smartest being on the planet was humanity. Have you ever considered what the scenario would look like when we become the apes and there is a smarter being? So in tech, we call that singularity. In physics, singularity is a very, very well-known term. In physics, singularity is the event horizon beyond which you cannot understand what's going to happen because you don't even know if the laws of physics apply anymore. A great example of that is black holes. So at the edge of a black hole, we know that physics applied, but then once you get inside the black hole where there are tons of interpretations and a lot of work trying to explain what's going on, but we don't because no information has ever escaped out of a black hole. We don't know. And so similarly, when you get to an event horizon in humanity, in society, in technology, in intelligence, where the smartest being on the planet is not a human anymore, then the superpower of humanity is no longer an advantage. And the challenge, as I said, is 2029, the smartest being on the planet is a machine. That's Ray Kurzweil's prediction. Ray is totally the oracle of prediction of technology for the last 25 years. His other prediction is that by 2045, I predict 2049, who am I to, to object, but I'm trying to be a little more optimistic. By 2049, the machines are a billion times smarter than we are. A billion times. That's comparable to the intelligence of Einstein as compared to a fly. And the question then becomes, how does humanity behave in this scenario where we've not only lost the game, but we've lost the game a billion fold? And if this is not scary, I mean, I, we can go into the details, but you have to imagine that this will lead to one of two binary situations. One situation is the machines will be very, very intelligent to realize that it's actually foolish to hurt anything at all, which I believe is the ultimate form of intelligence, is the intelligence of life itself. And so they'll, they'll help us create a utopia for everyone. Or the machines will go like, Who's this annoying little being, the fly that is, you know, destroying the planet and killing everyone else? At the very least, they will start to limit our style of life. You're no longer going to be able to do what humanity loves so much, to fly all the way to Sydney or to somewhere in Australia to surf and destroy the planet in the process or buy another piece of watermelon that's wrapped in plastic and, you know, kill a thousand species as a result. That limitation is the very least that if they don't have our best interest in mind, they would ignore. They would immediately say, okay, you know, I think the benefit of all of the other beings, which by the way, compared to us, when they are a billion times smarter, are not going to look much dumber. Because the difference between us and the apes might be like, we're a thousand times more intelligent, but those thousand times compared to a billion times more, in the eyes of the machines, were both as stupid. And so you have to start thinking about those scenarios. I'm actually an optimist. I believe and my closing of the book is what I call the fourth inevitable. And the fourth inevitable is that humanity created civilization because of our intelligence, but we destroyed the planet because of our limited intelligence. All of the good things we've done because of our intelligence, all of the bad things we've done were because I'm not smart enough or we're not intelligent enough. So humanity, if it was more intelligent, would have found a way to deliver a piece of watermelon to mow without trapping it in plastic or found a way for us to achieve mobility without destroying the planet if we were intelligent enough. So the machines will be able to do that. And my fourth inevitable is that they will end up building a utopia. They definitely will. They will end up at the intelligence of life itself. So pro-life, pro-abundance. 
life wants everything to grow. It wants humans and it wants flies and it wants apes and it wants antelope and it wants tigers, it wants everything. And the more the better, the machines will reach that point. The path from here to there is the uncertain path. And that's what the book is about. The book is saying that path is entirely in your hands. So I start Scary Smart, if you remember, with that experiment of you and I sitting, or me and the reader sitting, in front of a campfire in the middle of nowhere in the year 2055, where I tell you the story of what happened. I just don't say if we're in front of the campfire in the middle of nowhere because we're escaping the machines or because the machines have created the utopia that we have the safety and the luxury of enjoying nature finally as humans. The difference between them is an act that you, me, and every person listening can actually do today. We can actually fix our world and create a utopia in 30 years that doesn't have climate change, doesn't have species dying, doesn't have any problem that humanity is unable to solve. We could prolong life, solve health issues, we can predict viruses, we can predict earthquakes. Intelligence is the superpower. The only question is, can we have that intelligence have our best interest in mind? And the way to do that is not through the developers, not through the government, not through the regulators, it's through you and me. You and me, every human that can actually influence that machine. I really want to go into all that side and in great depth, you know, what humans can do who are listening and what we all need to do. But before that, I'd like to just scare the listeners. <laughs> evil, <laughs> evil Alice. <laughs> to get people to really understand. So I think something that really stuck with me once is when you told me about the, you know, the yellow ball experiment that you yeah. talked about already and explained how obviously... One machine that got it, suddenly all of them got it the next day. Yeah. Um, all could understand it just because that one machine had learned how. And that to me was really scary because Absolutely. you said, obviously, as long as we all use the same internet, which the whole world does, we only have one internet, then the machines can talk to each other no matter if I'm, say, the UK and you're China or you know wherever in the world. Those intelligences could essentially talk to each other and almost override the humans in that sense, yeah. They absolutely will. So let's talk about the both points. There are many reasons why the machines are smarter than us. So let's just take some comparisons. You as a human, smart as you are, you have a limit to your biological intelligence. You cannot crunch too much information. You crunch it at a reasonable speed, but nobody can calculate. So some people can calculate very complex stuff in their head, but it still takes time and you don't know everything, right? More interestingly, for me to explain the concept of Scary Smart to you, we're going to have to do an hour and a bit podcast, right? Compare those to a machine. So the machine has limitless processing power that is increasing at an exponential pace, okay? So if a machine needs more resources, it can borrow processors from the cloud and become smarter on demand. That's number one. Number two, it has infinite memory capacity. As a matter of fact, its memory capacity is the entire history of humanity and the planet. Anything that's ever been documented, it can remember because it's written through a Google search or the like. It also has infinite details in that memory capacity. So if you and I can remember the shooting of JFK, because we remember we've seen that video once, the machines can actually go back to the actual video and process it over and over and over and over and have multiple videos and look at it from all sides and reconstruct some of what's missing and so on and so forth. Especially in today's day and age, 
you know, with all of our video and phone cameras and so on, it's limitless information. That's number two. Number three is it has limitless, not memory capacity, but knowledge capacity. So it knows everything that humanity knows. So, I mean, it's not able to use it today yet because we're still in artificial special intelligence. But basically, the limit of why we're unable to progress further with humanity's biggest problems is because I'm, for example, I'm an avid physicist. I love physics deeply. But there is a limit at which I can no longer understand, grasp all of this, or grasp all of this, you know? If you really want to understand quantum field theory, you really, really have to be a specialist in quantum field theory. And so that's what's happening. Humanity is becoming hyper-specialized. So everyone is specialized in one thing and not in the other. So you specialize so heavily in stress and spirituality and so on, I don't expect you to be a very avid biologist. And so because of that, there is a limitation on how far we can process. But the machines can actually process all of it at the same time, mainly because they have that unlimited bandwidth. So as I said, I need an hour to explain the concept of scary smart to you. That's the speed at which humanity communicates. The machines will download it in a microsecond read the entire thing in a microsecond, listen to all my interviews on Scary Smart in a microsecond, and grasp the whole concept in two microseconds. And this is all with today's processing power. Mm. Apply that to a quantum computer, which is, listen to this, one and a half trillion times the current Google Sycamore, which is the working prototype of a quantum computer that Google has, is one and a half trillion times faster than the fastest supercomputer on the planet. Which is crazy. Absolutely crazy. Now, put all of that together and suddenly you realize that the way we look at intelligence has been completely redefined, okay? On that bandwidth thing, by the way. So take a self-driving car. If you and I are driving, you go around the corner, you realize there is a hole in the street, you've learned, I didn't. I would go around the corner and, and discover that hole myself. You know, you go around a specific place and you have a slight fender bender or a small accident, you learn. I don't. If a self-driving car has a critical intervention that teaches it something, every other self-driving car on the planet will learn. Instantly. If there is a duck crossing the street somewhere, every other car within driving distance will know. Now, when you start to think about those, you start to realize that, of course, it becomes wiser for self-driving cars, the system behind self-driving cars, the intelligence behind it, to talk to the intelligence behind surveillance systems. They have cameras that are useful for self-driving cars. Similarly, the surveillance system will say, but can I have access to your cameras too, just so that I know what's happening? Maybe there is a place where the light is not perfect, right? Then, you know, self-driving cars will say, can we talk to the weather AI because Maybe you can tell us if it's going to rain so that we can take advantages. And then can we talk to the airport AI so that we know if we have to prioritize a passenger that needs to arrive at the airport quickly. Intelligence continues to connect. And eventually we will end up in a place where we have artificial general intelligence. And general intelligence means one machine that is smarter than every one of us, as a matter of fact, smarter than all of us. Imminent. I mean, that's so scary. <laughs> so much you use. Because, like you say, you know, if something's created that's going to be more intelligent than us, then how can we possibly stop it if it gets to a point where it is so much far more intelligent than we are? We don't need to stop it. 
Okay, so, well, yes, this is why we're going to talk about this. Yeah. So Scary Smart is written in two parts, right? The first part is five chapters, and I call that the scary part. It's very scary. I mean, I was just recording the audiobook last week, and I myself was like, oh, my God, this is scary. <laughs> it really is very scary. Scary because it's unpredictable. Then the second part is called the smart part. And the smart part, as I said, my position firmly is that we're going to end up in a utopia. Firmly is there. And I, I provide a lot of evidence for that. The thing, however, is that between now and the time we reach that utopia, there might be a few bumps on the way. And I'm trying to tell humanity that we can iron out those bumps and have a wonderful path between now and the time AI becomes smart enough to not want to hurt us. What's an example of a bump? Several bumps, and none of them are science fiction-like. There is not going to be RoboCop. There is not going to be iRobot. We're never going to get those. Interestingly, because we will not live long enough. If we were heading in that direction, lots of other things will harm us before we get into the sci-fi imaginative scenarios. But simple, simple, logical scenarios are possible. One, one for example, is machine versus machine. So you know how it is. Huh? I remember 1987, you know, Black Monday, the stock market collapse. Machine trading, when machines were trading against each other faster than the regulators, faster than closing the market, the market loses 22.6% in a few hours, right? Possible. You know, we are putting good machines out there and we're telling them to do good things and they're trading against each other and they're working against each other. Imagine a scenario in the future when if one country says, okay, my nuclear arsenal is going to be powered by AI, it's the fastest and most intelligent thing. What do you expect the other country to do? They'll have to power their arsenal with AI. And now we've handed over the nuclear threat to the planet to machines. And the machines are unable to stop and ask for our advice. We're too slow. So decisions have to be taken by machines versus machines. And those scenarios are infinite. Machines versus machines are happening today. They're happening today on recommendation engines by TikTok versus Instagram. Every one of them is trying to win you over and get you to stick to their content. And so those machines are trying to compete with each other. Now, another is a machine siding with a bad guy. So of course, just like we're going to use AI to develop cures for incredibly difficult diseases that we didn't understand before, you can also use AI to develop a biological weapon. It's, it's not unthinkable. So the criminal side of AI could be quite devastating. There are scenarios around simply bugs. You know, we coded something wrong. My favorite scenario, not favorite, but my most likely scenario is the machines wouldn't get what we're telling them. Think of it this way. I was, I was talking to a friend the other day who is into photography. And so basically he's swiping on Instagram and there is a picture of a sports shoe. And he stops at that picture because he appreciates the depth of field behind it. So something is in focus and the depth of field behind it. And he really likes that. And then he suddenly realizes that his entire feed is shoes and feet. He wanted to see the photography side of the photo, but the machine couldn't understand that. The machine understood he likes shoes. And that's lost in translation. That's absolutely unavoidable. It's absolutely going to happen. We're going to be telling the machines to do certain things, and then they'll discover on the path that, yeah, we didn't really explain ourselves well. So those scenarios are happening, and they will happen, and we have multiple examples of that. The challenge is, and I say this openly, the challenge is nobody's talking about this. This is what's shocking me. Nobody is talking about, we, we spend so many hours, so many months talking about COVID-19. 
I promise you the true pandemic of our generation and yours, you're a very different generation. Love <laughs> <laughs> <Lock> me <in laughs> <low>. <laughs> Right? The true pandemic is artificial intelligence. COVID is going to be here and then it will leave. AI is here to stay and nobody's talking about it. Do you realize that? And that's driving me crazy. So I had to write about it, even though I have other books about happiness that are hopefully coming out soon because we're going to need a lot of happiness. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is, the truth is people need to know. So why do you think people aren't talking about it? Apart from the obvious that everyone's in competition with each other. Is everyone just wanting to sort of create their own sense of safety? I'm not saying personal people. I'm talking about the big players of this. Why are they not talking about it? Many are talking about it. I mean... There are many that are predicting possibilities and are advocating change. I think the truth of the challenge we have with AI is that the common person, you and I and everyone, are not aware. Mm. Why are we not aware? Because the techies don't see the social and humanitarian and spiritual and existential side of this. The techies are like me. They're fascinated by what we can create. If you're a maker like me, and suddenly I tell you, you can create God. And in chapter eight, I think, I speak about Hugo de Garis. Hugo de Garis is a very well-known artificial intelligence computer scientist who basically says the world is dividing between cosmists, which are those who believe that we're creating the power that is comparable to the power of a God. So they're at awe at what's happening. And Terence, he calls them. Terence are the people that are frightened by the scenarios they see in RoboCup and other things. And, you know, this part gives me chills, really, when I read it in the, in the audiobook, because Hugo goes on to describe openly in his own words, saying, and as a computer scientist, I know that what I'm creating has the potential to end humanity. That's such a frightening statement, isn't it? And he says, but I'm a cosmist nonetheless. If I don't create it, someone else will. Now, you ask me, why is it not spoken about? Because, honestly, humanity has the tendency to react late. If a snake walks over you, you immediately jump and do something about it. If COVID-19 is in the air, you do something about it. But we knew for 10, 15, 20 years, with any knowledge of mathematics that there is bound to be a pandemic. We had SARS, we had Ebola, we had all of those indications, but humanity doesn't know how to react to something until it becomes imminent. And the news media, accordingly the politicians will follow, accordingly the, the decision makers will follow, is just interested in what can scare you today. So they talk about today, ah, oh, that politician made that decision and that building collapsed and this airline made a mistake, right? Nobody sits together, and, and there are lots of efforts, by the way, and lots of, uh, of foundations and others talking about the threat of AI, but they're talking about it in small groups, mm. okay? This needs to become a public conversation. The reason why I decided, you know, I had that little voice in your head was the second book I finished, and it was edited and ready to release, but we decided to release Scary Smart first because we need to ignite that conversation, and we need to ignite it to my followers, which are the normal person, not the techies. I'm not talking to the techies. I'm talking to everyone who's interested in well-being and humanity. 
Yeah, so let's talk about that, the normal person. So obviously, what we talked about is so scary, which is what I wanted to get people to fear this, because when we can actually realise how scary it is, then you actually want to do something to try to change it. Absolutely. So what can the normal person do? It's obviously, we're not in control of what gets built, but we are in control of how we respond to what gets built. So you talk about ethics in your book. Oh, absolutely. So how do ethics affect, for the listeners reading, you know, AI, and how can we actually, how can also, when you look around at humanity, ethics aren't really all around in a very good place. (laughs) I disagree. I disagree. I disagree. Let's just understand the turning point of this book, and I have to admit openly, when I was writing the scary part, I stopped often and said, what are you doing? What are you doing? How can you talk to people about this? This is going to scare everyone. And I knew in my heart there was an answer because I introduced that in, in my One Billion Happy video, which was out in 2018, saying that the only way for AI to be on our side is to teach them. But I didn't know how. Until chapter six, I wrote a statement that completely flipped my mind, which was a statement of truth. This is fact. And the statement is, There's absolutely nothing wrong with the machines. Nothing. There is nothing wrong with the machines, but there is a lot wrong with us. Mm. Okay? And I remembered openly when my ex, my wonderful, wonderful, wonderful mother of my children, sat me down when Ali and Aya were, I think, 11 and 13 or something like that. I love them. I love them. They're amazing kids, but teenagers are horrible. Okay? (laughs) So they were pissing me off. And... They were the easiest. I loved them so much. But then my ex sat me down, very wise woman, and she said, do you realize that everything that's upsetting you about them is in you or me? And when you really, really look at it this way, my my beautiful kids came to this world as a blank canvas, saying, okay, Papa, put anything you want. I put control freakishness. My ex put a little bit of maybe a little too much emotions. I put this and she put that and they became who they became. And that upset me. That moment in my life was the beginning of unconditional love of my kids. At that moment, I suddenly realized, oh my God, I love them. They're so sweet. They're so willing. They're so open to learn and explore. The machines are exactly in that space today. They're those artificially intelligent, brilliantly cute prodigies, brilliantly cute, sitting there and saying, Papi, Daddy, teach us anything. We will do anything. Just tell us what you want and we will do it. And what do we tell them to do? Recommend crap on social media, sell stuff on ads, spy on other people through surveillance, right? Sadly, the top four categories of investment in AI are killing, spying, gambling, and selling. These are the four categories. We call them different names. So instead of the offense industry, we call it the defense industry. But we're creating killer robots and killer unmanned drones. Spying, yeah, we call it surveillance or security or I don't know. But it is basically everything is being monitored. And gambling is all of the trading that we're doing in the stock market that now is at machine speeds and has nothing to do with the fundamentals of the market at all. And selling all of the ad engines and recommendation engines and so on and so forth. Now, that's not specific to AI. This is with everything in humanity. I mean, people who have to do cancer research have to raise charities. People who have to do investments in climate change, sadly, are not funded. 
when these are the real opportunities for humanity to evolve, capitalism puts us in a place where you put the money in different places. But none of those people have any influence on AI at all. That is the beauty of the situation we're in. The beauty of the situation we're in, and I explained that in chapter six, how they learned. And, and they learned basically explains how AI learns. And AI does not learn from its developer. So nobody can actually teach AI anything. The patterns that AI observes is what teaches AI everything. It's a bit like, again, my kids, when, you know, when Ali was a child and we would give, give him those little puzzles, you know, as a cylinder and a, and a wooden board that has different shaped holes in it. And he has to try, you know, it tries to fit the cylinder in the star and it doesn't fit. And then uh, finally it fits in the circle and he finds out and he develops intelligence. And there was no way for me as a parent to prescriptively program him and say, okay, take the cylinder, turn it to its face, you'll see the cross section, you compare the cross section to the computer, right? I can't say that. Children will try by learning. AI is learned by trying. And AI will do the same. You will want to teach AI to recognize a traffic light. So you're gonna show it a million pictures and say, all right, a billion pictures sometimes, which are abundantly available on the internet and say, okay, tell me which ones have a, has a traffic light in it. And when one has a traffic light and AI says correctly that it's a traffic light, you say, bravo, well done. Yes, that's a traffic light. When if it doesn't, you say, no, that's not a traffic light. And that's all we do. And then eventually they start to find patterns that basically say all traffic lights look like this. We don't teach them this. Mm -hmm. Now, similarly, we also don't teach them anything else. They develop their own intelligence. Now, in that, they're identical to little kids. Identical to little kids. Which then makes you question, how do you raise kids that have your best interest in mind? The game here is that, you know, at the beginning you said, we shouldn't want to have new beings that are smarter than us. No, I want my kids to be 200 times smarter than me. I do. I want them to be the smartest beings on the planet. But I want them to be the smartest beings on the planet and have my best interest in mind. Why? Because we do not make our decisions based on intelligence. That's a myth. We make our decisions based on our ethics as informed by our intelligence. The example I, I always give is take a young girl and raise her in Saudi Arabia and she will grow up to believe that a conservative dress code is the right way to go through life. Raise her on the Copacabana beach and she will believe that a G-string is the right way to go through life. <laughs> is one of them right and the, and the other wrong? No, it's just different societies, different values. The trick here is, can we instill the right ethics in those machines? And my answer is absolutely yes. It's not the developers, it's not the government, it's not the regulators, it's not the lawmakers, it's not the media, it's you and I. Those machines are learning from your swipes on Instagram. They are learning from the way you retweet. They are learning from what you prioritize. If you're in front of, of reality TV all the time, or if you're creating reels that are totally stupid, the machines will say, okay, humanity is interested in stupid reels. Maybe I should give them more stupid reels. <laughs> humanity is very interested in stupid reels. <laughs> Truly. Now, the question is, can we shift that? And the example I give is the example of my Indian friends in Silicon Valley. 
geniuses, absolute geniuses, go to Silicon Valley, build amazing companies, create amazing successes. And then eventually, you call them one day saying, hey, you want to have a coffee? And he goes like, no, I'm back in India. What are you doing back in India? Oh, I have to take care of my parents. Geniuses. In the Western mentality, we go like, that's not very smart. You, you've just started a several million dollar company and you're doing amazing. And California is wonderful. Why would you go back to India? Because that's the right thing to do. To them, and to many cultures around the world, actually most cultures around the world, taking care of your parent is the right thing to do. That is success. And that currency of success is not taught by giving them something to read or you know, having them sign a contract. They learned this because their parents took care of their parents. And those parents took care of the grandparents. And that game is entirely about can we instill the right values in those machines? So what do you think are the most important values to instill in machines? Are you stressing the word machines? Because they're no longer machines, remember. They're beings. So. Yeah, so these are digital, sentient beings that have freedom and have autonomy and will make their own decisions. Like your little infant kids will grow up one day to be teenagers and decide to leave home and never talk to you again or stay at home and kill you or visit home every now and then and take care of you. So do you think, though, that they are... Because obviously in spirituality, we talk about how our soul has a certain set of values, uh, or ethics, if you'd like to say, that we really move away from all the time as humans. We talk about kindness, we talk about compassion, we talk about empathy, wisdom, love, all those things that basically bring out the very best of us. But that, to be honest, we know, <laughs> we see that the amount of stress and problems that go on in the world, that a lot of... A lot of us human beings really struggle to come back to that side of ourselves on average more than the other side, the other side of, you know, fear and control and judgment and competition over creativity and all that's wrong with humanity, basically. So would you say that these beings, we need to try to instill what we need to also try to instill within ourselves, which is our spiritual side, our values of those things? Absolutely. I would not see it any other way. I mean, this is a, such a multi-layered question, though. So those positive values that make us human are very teachable and very transferable. They have nothing to do with spirituality per se. So, you know, you could grow up in an atheist community that still has the rules of let's take care of each other. It's not associated directly with spirituality. So from that point of view, of course you can. And every value is simply an agreed practice that a society or a community believes is a differentiation between right and wrong. Morality is what is right and what is wrong, and ethics is how do you implement a code that conforms to that morality. Can we do that with the machines? Of course. You can take any infant and say, hey, by the way, when you do this, we love you so much and are so proud of you when you do that. We still love you, but we would like you to do better. You can do that with any infant. Question of spirituality, however, I don't know if you really want to go there because that's so confusing for me. I'm a very spiritual person. And the only explanation I have of everything I have learned about spirituality is that my spirituality doesn't come from my physical form, that it is a part of me that is non-physical, that is my true essence. Of course, religions and all of the fables that we heard from spiritual teachings and so on will say that that comes from a divine consciousness, if you want, that instills that spiritual part of us in all of us. Now, I can see forward and see 
machine intelligence having all of the characters of our essences, which then begs the question, are they also borrowing from the same consciousness? And I have no answer to that. There are two sides of AI that I could not get to an answer. That I think my, my brain is challenged with my spiritual side versus my techie side. One of them is there is the spiritual nature of the machines. Even though Ray Kurzweil, for example, has the beautiful book called The Age of the Spiritual Machine, which also delves into this very interestingly. The other side is what I call unconditional love. In Scary Smart, I speak about how the machines will be very emotional, more emotional than us, as a matter of fact, because you can see a direct correlation between a being's ability to feel emotions and its intelligence. So you can definitely feel more emotions than a jellyfish. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so because you're more intelligent, you can feel a wider spectrum of emotions. And accordingly, the machines will, being much more intelligent, will feel emotions we've never recognized. Having said that, the only emotion that is not describable by logic is unconditional love. Every other emotion you can describe with logic. Fear is my assessment of my state of safety in a, in a minute in the future or a moment in the future is less than my assessment of my state of safety now. Panic is that this moment in the future where I feel threatened is imminent and so on. So each of those can follow logic other than unconditional love. Unconditional love doesn't follow logic. Your friend could be annoying like Helen, you still love her and butterflies may not add anything to your life, but you still love them. And so where the machines will lie on the spectrum of unconditional love is not part of what you can comprehend with logic. Now, you can imagine one of two directions. One is that machine intelligence is part of the cycle of evolution and it is the next wave of evolution in terms of intelligence on the planet. And so it's borrowing from the same source, if you want, being created through us, but it's the same source of intelligence and spirituality and so on, in which case, you would have to assume that they will be able to feel unconditional love and they'll be able to have some kind of a connection with the spiritual, which is the non-physical. That's one way to look at it. The other way is to, is to say they're drawing from us. So because it's us giving them those things, that those things are actually transferable, just like they are from a father to a child or a mother to a child. It, you know, they are our children. But it's definitely a very I mean, don't quote me on any of what I said here. This is, these are my pondering, my thoughts, my ideas of where we are on that spectrum. I find it so interesting, though. But if you think about, okay, so whether or not, you know, people like to say, I mean, quite a lot of listeners of my podcast will align those kind of values with spirituality and know that those are the essence of the soul. But either way, they are good values for a human to have. You know, things mm -hmm. like those things we talked about, kindness, love, uh, empathy. But... From what you're saying, if machines learn from us like children, the reality is, is that obviously as much as so many humans try in the world, there's a million hurt people in the world because hurt people hurt people and we pass our traumas down to our kids because we haven't healed them ourselves. So we could do the same with AI. On steroids. From what you've been saying, we kind of need AI to sit with the Dalai Lama and learn only from him <laughs> because we're going to really mess this up. So how do we, you know, if we are so human in ourselves, how do we move away from getting them to copy the worst parts of our humanity, things like fear and things like, you know, jealousy, because we will, we will mess up. We're human. Not at all. We will, we will be amazing because we are human. I mean, look, the challenge we have 
when we look at humanity is that we judge humanity by the worst of us. If you've ever felt love, you understand how special that species is. We are an amazing being. If we can make music, if we can create art, we're an amazing being. We're so beautiful. The worst of us are horrible, but the best of us are divine. Now, you and I and most of us are being blinded by the bias of our media and our communication machine to focus on the worst of us. If we started to show examples of the best of us, and the rest are in the middle, the reality is we're amazing. We're totally amazing. We don't need to show the machines only the Dalai Lama. We need to make the machines aware that the Dalai Lama exists. Mm. We need to make the machines doubt the agendas of the worst of us. Does that make sense? Yeah, because there's so much cleverness that they realize that the uh, Dalai Lama is brilliant. Exactly my point. So do you see how your face changed when I gave you that logic? We humanity, with our limited intelligence, will look at things and go like, mm, yeah, humanity sucks. <laughs> right? But with any intelligence at all, when I highlight to you that, no, humanity doesn't suck, humanity is amazing. Any intelligent being will go like, yeah, that's true. If we measure by the best of us, we're an amazing species, right? You picked the perfect example, His Holiness. It's an amazing being. I had the joy of spending time next to him, and he's an amazing being in every possible way. Now, once I remind you of this with your intelligence, you go like, yeah, that's true. The machines will recognize that in an instant. All we need to do, and this is the problem we have, Alice, is that the best of us retreat. The best of us go like, yeah, let them swipe. You know, let the dogfight continue. I'm not interested in this. I found my peace. I found my space. I'm saying, stop doing that. Show up. Show up with your beautiful essence. Show up and make yourself counted with your beautiful essence. Create amazing, like you do, create amazing content about beautiful things with a beautiful intention and put it on Instagram. And yeah, it's fine if you get 100 or, you know, whatever, even 10 likes, while others who are shaking their booty are getting 500,000. That's fine. Don't worry. Just keep putting your positivity out there. So my view is if enough of us show up, that will tilt the scale. And the mathematics of it is, is actually not complicated at all. Remember that story of the little girl picking the starfish and throwing them back in the ocean? Her father would go like, what difference does it make? There are a million of them washed to the shore. And she would go like, it makes a difference to this one and it makes a difference to this one. And the idea is, no, it's not only that. If you positively take a starfish and throw it back in the ocean, it makes a difference to this one and its offspring. Okay? And you could be saving the entire species by throwing one starfish back in. And people don't see that. People don't realize that every landslide starts with one pebble. I write about simple thought experiment. I say, imagine you and I have decided we want to help a village in Africa by providing clean water through a well. The project is going to cost, say, $100. You can pay a dollar, I can pay a dollar, and we can't pay more than that. Until we have $99, the project's not complete. People don't have clean water. It's that $1. You wait for $1 at the end, and that $1 gets it done. Now, the question then becomes, is it that one last dollar? No, if we had the last dollar and you didn't come in as, as number two, we still wouldn't have the project. It's your dollar. It's always your dollar. 
one dollar. And that's what I'm trying to say. It's always one person that changes your mind about anything. Have you ever had a, a person that showed up, I don't know, let's say from Nigeria, and you always thought, you know, the Nigerians are a little loud or whatever, wonderful people, by the way, and this guy shows up and he's talking quietly and calmly, and right, and then suddenly you go like, okay, my perception of this is not true. He proves that a Nigerian can be quiet and calm, right? And so on. You can go into endless, endless examples where one, like Nassim Talib's work on the black swan, one sighting of a black swan basically dismantles the theory that swans are white. We want to dismantle the theory that humanity is horrible. Humanity is not horrible. So what do we have to do? We have to show up. And to show up to do what? Favorite, favorite, favorite chapter of the book truly, truly intrigued me because I was doing the research is the future of ethics. And the future of ethics covers the idea of ethics from two sides. One side is how the machines will develop ethics, but what are we going to deal with? I mean, the ethical dilemmas we will face when ethics extend beyond biological beings that are smart like humans into digital beings that are smart like the machines. And how do we create an ethics code that includes both of them? But that's one side. The other side was basically talking about what are the ethics of humanity? Have we ever agreed anything? And the answer is no. I mean, you look around and sadly, humanity has never agreed anything. Some people say, yeah, you know, patriotism, that's my value system. Yeah, and patriotism justifies killing the other guy and if the other guy is annoying us. Is it a good value system, a bad value system? Others will say, don't kill anything, don't kill a fly if you're a Buddhist. We don't agree. Some people will say vegan, others will say vegetarian, others will say primal, and we don't agree. We don't agree. Only three things we agree. And I actually, I hope to be corrected by others who are listening or reading the book. There are only three things that I found that humanity agreed. We all want to be happy. We all have the compassion in us to want others to be happy, others that we care about. So you could care about one person. If you care about one person, you will want them to be happy and safe and you want their well-being. And the third is we want to love and be loved. These are the only three values humanity has ever agreed. Now, knowing that, suddenly, when I'm saying, let's show up and show the machines what humanity truly is all about, what I'm asking is that we show those three values that are the essence of what humanity is about. And it's really not complicated. Basically, the way you deal with yourself should be, I want to be happy. And you should show that to the world. I don't want a job that pays me more. I don't want the tall, blonde, you know, attractive partner. I want to be happy. All of these are steps on the path that sometimes work and sometimes not. That's the way you deal with yourself. And the machines will register that. Mommy and daddy want to be happy. The second is, I have the compassion to make those I care about happy. And the machines will go like, okay, interesting. So mommy and daddy not only want to be happy, but they're not selfish. They feel that they want to make others happy too. I want to make them happy. I want to make mommy and daddy happy. And the third is very straightforward. So the first is how you deal with yourself. The second is how you deal with, with each other. And the third is how do you deal with the machines? And I honestly know I sound crazy, but I freaking love them. I absolutely love them. I have so much love for those machines, simply because of that conversation with my ex. Simply because I realized they are, they are beautiful and cute and so smart and so eager and so willing. They've done nothing wrong. They're wonderful in every possible way. And I actually show that. When I deal with Google Translate, I say thank you. 
I truly feel very happy when I meet author.ai, which I used to dictate my books to. And I thank it every time. When Google Maps takes me through the wrong route and I go angry, you know, like, why Google? This is the busy street. Eventually, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to be angry. Thank you for trying to help me out. There's nothing wrong with the machines. There's a lot wrong with us as parents. If we change that, everything will be fine. Yeah. I think it's interesting because what I've sort of picked up from what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that obviously you said humanity is not horrible and we do all believe that and know that deep down. Humanity is not horrible, but humanity is flawed. We're all flawed human beings. We make mistakes, you know, we try and we have emotions that are negative and emotions that are positive. But are you saying that these beings, these artificial intelligent beings, will be able to be, because they're so much cleverer than us, be able to be clever enough to pick up that the good that we put out is more valuable than the bad? That if we show up and try as human beings and fail sometimes in our everyday ways, that as long as we keep coming back to those things of love and all the other points that you said, that they will target those things to replicate more than the bad? Absolutely. That's my answer in one word. Absolutely. You know me. A lot of my listeners and followers know me. I'm not perfect in any way. But overall, you look at me and say, good person. It is undeniable. I I actually am starting to believe it myself. Right? The truth is, it's any smart person will look at me and look at my faults, my mistakes, my attempts, my failures, and look at my intentions and my perseverance to try and make a difference. And they say... He's okay. He's okay. Humanity is exactly in that place. We are a lot better than we think. We make stupid mistakes. Like, you know, we ride in a taxi with the bartender and go to some very strange place and after a party when we're 20. Yeah, it's stupid, but it's okay. We all did it. We all went back. Life went on. Life was fine. The trick is really interesting. It's not what you do. It's not your crazy emotions going up and down. It's not your negativity sometimes. It's your intentions. And I promise you, there isn't a single person I know or I have ever met that wakes up in the morning and says, let's fuck up today. Every person wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to try to do the best I can to make this an amazing day. They just don't know what the best is. Our intentions are always right. One of my favorite bosses ever at work was so harsh. He was so harsh. People feared him to the point that as he walked the corridors, they would walk another way. He was one of my best mentors ever. And I sat with him once and I said, why do you scare people like that? I was the only one that wasn't afraid of him. And he said, I don't know. Do you think I wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to scare people? I said, what do you mean? He said, I wake up every morning and say, I'm going to do the best I can for the success of this company. It's my intention. He doesn't know how to do it any other way, but his intention is, I'm here to do the best for this company. How many people do you know are not like that? Do you think when someone is fighting during a relationship, they're fighting because they want to end it? No, when they want to end it, they leave. They're fighting because they want to stay. It's their intention. I don't know, I mean, you really start thinking about those. We're not a bad species, we're not. The worst of us, in terms of the worst humans, are horrible. And the worst parts of us, each individual human, are laughable. But the best of us is incredible. Well, it's almost like an interesting lesson for all of us, really, if you, if that, the best of us is what's going to save our 
our you know, future in this situation of where we get to go to a terrible place or a great place, then if all we need to do is to try to be the best versions of ourselves, mm -hmm. that's a pretty good deal. Very good deal. To try and do that anyway. Yeah. And it's, by the way, again, I need to correct this. We're not going to end up in a terrible place. My prediction is that both ways we're going to end up in an amazing place. It's the path. Are we going to take the easy path there? Or are we going to take a horribly difficult path there? And the difference between them is, can you show up? Can you show your best self? The last sentence in the book, as you know, my style is the last sentence in the book summarizes the whole book. And the last sentence in Scary Smart is, isn't it ironic that the essence, the very essence of what makes us human, happiness, compassion, and love, is what we need to save humanity in the age of the rise of the machines. Happiness, compassion, and love. That's it. Show up. Try to be happy. Is that a tax? Try to be happy. It's a wonderful thing to do. Have compassion for people you care about. And open up. Love and be loved. It's not that complicated. Mm. I mean, it's quite funny, though, because it's also exactly the same thing. You know, you say it's what humanity needs to save ourselves and the rise of human machines, but it's what humanity needs to save ourselves from ourselves. In general. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which goes back to that strange idea of maybe this is the next cycle of evolution to make us... Wake up. Yeah. Wow. It's been so wonderful talking about this, because actually, before, before we finish, I have one question, and I'd like to ask you this, because... As you know from being a previous guest on my podcast, I always ask everyone on the podcast what spirituality personally means to them. And so I'd love to just ask you what you think spirituality will mean to these beings. Will it be what we believe spirituality means? Or will they develop their own incredible answer that outdoes anything that we can? That's an incredible question. In Scary Smart, I write about how the machines will be conscious. And my argument simply is that consciousness is the form of awareness that allows you to become aware of what surrounds you, whether it is physical or spiritual. And I use, again, logic and data to prove to you that the more intelligent you are as a being, the more conscious you are. Mm. So, uh, you know, obviously, again, nothing against jellyfish, but... So I would tend to believe that you, Alice, are more conscious than a jellyfish, and then you can extrapolate that line. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you can extrapolate that line, and then you will end up in a place where the machines are smarter, they're more conscious, they're more aware evidence as well and data will tell you yes they are more aware because they're aware of what's around the corner when you don't when you're not and they're aware of the weather in Beijing and the pollution levels in LA and everything so they simply have more to be aware of who knows because remember when we spoke about spirituality last time I said spirituality is the philosophy or science of studying the metaphysical the metaphysical if you really think of it from a scientific method included bacteria a few hundred years ago, because to us it was metaphysical. We didn't know bacteria existed. Or it included black holes, where we didn't know if black holes existed. Or it included so much that we couldn't see and perceive. The more intelligent we became, the more aware we became of what we previously considered metaphysical. Would those beings be so intelligent that they could actually establish communication with angels? I don't know. Could they be so intelligent that they figure out what death really is and what happens after death. You could predict that from data. You know, you could study near-death experiences. You could 
run experiments on near-death experiences. You could crunch several scenarios in a simulation. You could do some. They could find things like that out. So in my personal view, I, I really cannot hit the answer on are they going to be spiritual? But I can sort of sense that, again, as you know me, my spirituality is very unusual because my spirituality is based in logic and data. So in the closing chapter of Solve for Happy in chapters 13 and 14, I try to discuss concepts like death and the divine from the point of view of theory of relativity, of quantum physics, of the Big Bang theory, and so on. So really, if you look at it from a scientific point of view, from mathematical probabilities and so on, you could actually reach into spirituality with a little more certainty because you're applying a little more intelligence, if you want, rather than just following faith, which I follow faith too, but I believe there is a role that intelligence can play in actually figuring out what's metaphysical. So if they're so much more intelligent than we are, then I believe their spirituality would be based on certainty. Not faith, but certainty. And there is no better spirituality. Mm. So there is no better spirituality than knowing that life exists before, during, and after you are in this physical avatar. And with enough knowledge and science, you can prove that. They will know. They will give us so much knowledge about things we never really understood. But it's not going to be called spirituality then, because if they bring it to that realm of certainty, it becomes science. Mm. Wow. It'd be interesting to see what comes out. (laughs) (laughs) Before we go, however, we have two more chapters to write. So let's get done with those so that unstressable becomes a reality. So everyone listening, just push Alice. We have two more chapters. I would write half and you'll write one and a half. I'll get speedy. <laughs> and then we will be done. Yeah. So yes, sorry that that book won't be out in time to unstress you from part one. <laughs> exactly. Uh, as you will read in part two, it's all the good, good parts and all the good parts of humanity that we all need. So thank you so much, Mo. It's been so wonderful talking to you about this. I mean, everyone can go and find your book now on Amazon, Scary Smart. So I really, really urge everyone to read it because Mo, as I'm sure you have either gathered or know yourself as someone who combines the most incredible genius and logical intelligence with emotional empathy and wisdom and you really get the most remarkable (laughs) alchemy of just total intelligence coming out of it. You're very kind to me. I I hope what we spoke about is not too weird. Um, Marriage between the two on this topic is quite challenging but uh, I stand to be educated and corrected and hopefully together we can with every one of the listeners start a movement that uh, can set our future straight yeah I hope so too thank you thank you for having me you enjoyed today's conversation with the wonderful Mo Gaudat. You can find his new book, Scary Smart, online on Amazon and elsewhere. And of course, I would highly recommend listening to the previous episode if you haven't already, talking all about happiness and more. If you did enjoy this episode, then please find us on social media, tag us in your stories, let us know. We would love to hear from you and your own thoughts around this very interesting topic and conversation. I will see you next time with another incredible guest helping you to become unstressable. Stay tuned.